to Psalm 119. We are going to be looking at verses 65 through 72 this morning. And this morning, I'd like to talk to you about God's goodness in our affliction. God's goodness in our affliction. You know, let's talk a little bit about that word good. Uh, It's a very flexible word. It can mean a lot of different things depending on what you're talking about. And to illustrate that, let's think about what happened three days ago. It's Thanksgiving. You're sitting around the table. You look at someone across the table and you say, the sweet potato casserole is good. You know what I'm talking about. The sweet potatoes with the cinnamon sugar and the pecans. And maybe if you're a little extra, you put marshmallows on it or whatever else. But you say, this is good. What are you talking about when you say this is good? You mean it tastes good, right? It's pleasing to the taste buds. All right, scenario number two. You look at someone across the table and you say, this, these green beans are good or this broccoli is good. You're not talking about the same thing. And here's why. Because when you're making your plate at the buffet line, you felt a little bit guilty after getting all the sweet potatoes and the mac and cheese. You're like, all right, I better put something green on this plate just so I feel a little bit better about myself. When you say it's good, you don't mean it's good in the same way that sweet potato casserole is good. You mean that there's like vitamins and nutrients in these green beans that are good for my body. Let's say now it's later in the day and you've stuffed yourself with turkey and everything else and you're watching football like a good American on Thanksgiving and you say, this football team is good. I know you Washington fans didn't have a chance to say that. Calm down. Us 49ers fans had definitely a chance to say that. Um, when you say that they're good, you're not saying that they taste good, I hope not, or that they have you know, vitamins and nutrients that are good for your body. You're saying they are competent in what they are doing. You see, the word good can mean something entirely different depending on what and who we are talking about. Like this pizza is good or this dog is good. The word means something different. But when we talk about God... When we talk about the goodness of God, when we say God is good, it should be abundantly clear to us that we're talking about someone that's in a category all to himself. So I want to spend some time today talking about what it means when we say the simple little phrase that you've grown up saying, God is good. I want to spend some time reflecting on that. But then I think the psalmist is going to do something shocking. Because when we talk about the goodness of God, we typically say that phrase when something happens in our life that we would call good. When you get the new house, when you get the new car, when you get the new job, when you're eating the sweet potato casserole, when your football team wins, whatever else it might be. But you know what he's gonna say in verse 71? He's gonna say, it is good for me, what? That I was afflicted. It's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. I wanna show you a shocking place where we find the goodness of God. It's in our affliction. It's in our suffering. It's in our struggle. It's a place where God manifests his goodness in surprising ways in our lives. So this morning, here's the game plan. This is gonna be less of an exposition verse by verse of this text and more of a meditation on what I think is the theme of this text. And as we talked about meditating on scripture two weeks ago, really this whole sermon is born out of meditating on verse 71, that beautiful verse. What does it mean that it is good for us that we are afflicted, that we might learn his statutes? And here's the main point that I hope we'll see this morning. God manifests his goodness toward us in the midst of our affliction. So with this in mind, let's read the text together. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Verse 65, 
You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So God, I pray that as we study this word this morning, you would be able, you would enable us to say along with the psalmist that this word is better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. God, I pray that your word would be more precious to us than billions and billions of dollars because your word reveals to us your very heart. It reveals your goodness. It reveals how we can know you and in you find everything. God, I pray that you would comfort those who came in bearing the weight of affliction this morning, that you would comfort them with the truth, Lord, that you are good to us all the time. God, I pray that you would help us to see your goodness more clearly in our lives, that moment by moment, our lives might be an overflow of praise and gratitude for who you are and for all that you've done for us through Christ. We love you and praise you. By your spirit, help us to understand this word and apply it to our lives, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanna spend the first half of this sermon talking to you about the goodness of God this morning, the goodness of God. I think that word good is the key word in this stanza. Just to recap a little bit for you guys who haven't been here for the whole sermon series, we saw in the first week that Psalm 119 has a very tight structure. There are 22 stanzas because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each stanza has a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet that begins each verse. If you look in your Bible, like it has in mine, it has at the very top there, it says taith. That's the Hebrew letter, taith. And so each verse in this stanza begins with that letter. And in particular, five of the eight verses in this stanza begin with the little word tov. That word tov means good. The same word used in Genesis 1 to describe when God looked over his creation and he saw that it was tov, that it was good. So this stanza has something to say to us about goodness. And if you grew up in church like me, there's probably a little thing that your preacher used to do that you've heard before. So we're gonna do a little test. So how many of y'all know this one? God is good and all the time. You guys are good, you know this. We talk about the fact that God is good. We talk about the goodness of God all the time. But sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we hear a phrase repeated so much that we never take a moment and think, what does that mean? What are the implications of this truth? So let's explore for just a couple of minutes. When we say that God is good, when we say the goodness of God, what do we mean? First of all, I wanna show you that we're talking about God's character. We're talking about God's character. Let's look together at verse 68. The psalmist says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. It's both you are good, that's God's person, and you do good, that's God's works, what he does. Therefore, teach me your statutes. Let's talk about the first part of that verse. You are good. 
The psalmist is saying to God, you are good. And here's the deal. When we say that, this might sound like a bit of abstract theology, but this is really important. Bear with me. All right, when we say that God is good, we're not saying that there is some external standard of goodness that God must measure up to, that God must conform to. No, we're saying that God himself is the standard and that everything else is judged whether it is good or not based upon how well it conforms to God, his holy and his righteous and his perfect character. God is not just good and that he does good things. God himself is the standard by which we determine if everything else is good or not good. God is himself good in his very being and therefore everything he does is good. God has revealed to us what is good and what is not good through his word. Here's why this is so important for us, especially as we're talking about affliction and suffering this morning. The one thing that suffering does is it tempts us to doubt the goodness of God. It tempts us to doubt the goodness of God. When we're suffering, when we're afflicted, we can begin to think things like this and say things like this. God, if you were good, you wouldn't let this happen. God, if you were good, you would do this. Or why would a good God let this happen? And here's where I have to bring a very heavy truth this morning to us. When we say things like that, we reveal that we are creating a standard that God must measure up to. And what we're doing in effect in that moment is in the very least in our heart and in our mind, God is no longer God, we are. Because we are defining for God what it means to be God. We're saying, if you do this, then I will acknowledge you as good and acknowledge you as God. Guys, God is good in his very being. He is the very definition of goodness. And even in those moments of suffering, we must never allow our minds and hearts to be led astray into thinking that God is not good. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, right after his wife passed away called A Grief Observed. It's a short book. It's tragic where he's processing through his grief. And at the end of the first chapter, he makes this really powerful statement where he says, He's not in danger of believing that God doesn't exist. What he's in danger of doing is believing things about God that are different than what he used to. He's doubting the goodness of God. Guys, God is good in himself. He is good. Let us never doubt that because we're about to see how he demonstrated it. We're about to see how he proved his goodness in our lives. Because the verse says you are good, but next it says you do good. I wanna show you the two ways that God demonstrates goodness in our lives. The first is through his provision. God demonstrates his goodness by providing us with everything that we need. As it says in Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. God provides for everyone and everything. Let's think about this for a minute. God is the creator, right? So God made everything. All right, let's keep going with this train of logic. God made everything, then God owns everything. He made it, so it's his. And because it's his, God is the ruler of everything. God is the king over all the world. So I want you to think about this. That breath that you just took, that's God's air. (laughs) That breakfast that we ate this morning, that's God's food. 
everything that we have, the very energy in our bodies that is allowing our muscles to move and allowing me to speak comes from God. He sustains the universe moment by moment. He provides everything. Theologians often refer to this as common grace. It is grace that is given to everyone, to all of creation. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. That means in a way that you can reflect your father in heaven is by loving your enemies. And why do we do that? Jesus is about to tell us. For he makes his son, I love that by the way. It's not just the son, like like it's God's son. He makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Like the sun doesn't just shine on Christians. Like rain doesn't just fall on Christians. This is grace that God gives to all of creation that we don't deserve. That's why it's grace, because we're sinners. So I want you to think about this. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he's only asking us to do what God has been doing every moment since the fall where God has been loving a creation in rebellion against him, sustaining the very rebels who are rebelling against him. We all have these blessings of sun and rain and food and marriage and laughter and music and so on and so forth. They're all a gift of God's grace. And it's a way that God manifests his goodness to creation. And at this point, I'd be remiss not to make application to this holiday that we just celebrated, right? Where our culture sets aside this day toward gratitude, toward being thankful. But here's the deal. If we understand God's common grace, how much more thankful ought we to be? How much more thankful ought we to be? In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 identifies ingratitude as one of the chief fundamental foundational sins of humanity. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. When we understand that everything we have is a gift from God, we ought to be so much more thankful. So as believers, are we intentionally cultivating a heart of gratitude for everything that God has blessed us with? Is that a moment by moment discipline in our lives that we are being grateful to the Lord for who he is and what he's done? God manifests his goodness in his provision But let's take it a step further. The ultimate way that God manifests his goodness is in salvation, in God's salvation. God is good in his very character and his being. God is good in that he provides all of our needs, but God is good in that he saves us. Titus chapter three shows us that salvation is a manifestation of God's goodness. This is what it says, Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's goodness led to the gospel. God is good, and his goodness was manifested when he rescued us. You see, as we've already seen, there is a creator God, 
a God who has made us, who has made the world for us to enjoy. He made us in his image to have a relationship with him and to reflect his glory. But all of us, we have rebelled against our creator. We have disobeyed God. We have worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And we have not been grateful to the God who has given us everything. And the only right punishment for a sin against an infinite God is infinite punishment. But God loved us so much and he is so, so good that rather than give us the punishment that we deserved on the spot, he came into this world. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate at Christmas, that God entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God and man in one person, that he lived a perfect life, never once sinning, in every word, in every action, in every healing, in every miracle, Jesus fully manifesting and demonstrating the goodness of God, showing us what it means to be truly good. Yet he was crucified in the place of bad people like you and me. You know, people say sometimes, why do good things happen to bad people? My answer is that only happened once on the cross. Because you and I are sinners and he is the only one that is truly good. Yet he went to the cross where he paid for our sins, dying in our place. If you want to see the goodness of God manifested more clearly than anything else, look to the cross. That is where God was good to us. And three days later, he bodily rose from the grave so that when we turn away from our sin, when we believe the gospel, when we receive Jesus Christ into our life, we are saved that is the goodness of God on full display that we are offered full salvation and eternal life through Christ. So we've spent some time meditating on verse 68 that you are good and you do good. But now I wanna pivot. And for the rest of this sermon, I wanna show you the place where God manifests his goodness, the most unlikely place of all, which is our affliction, which is in our affliction. Just listen to these verses, man. Listen to verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then verse 71 is my favorite. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You know, this word afflicted, it literally means to be brought low, to be bowed down. I get this mental image of a person walking with a heavy burden on their back that is just weighing them down and crushing them. And sometimes your life and circumstances can feel a lot like that, can't it? Like there's this heavy burden that is weighing you down. That's the idea behind affliction. I wanna show you this morning where affliction comes from in our lives and how we can see the goodness of God in it. But first, let me make a very careful distinction. I think this is important. Affliction is not good. Suffering is not good. Evil is not good. All of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the affliction in the world is a result of the fall. It's a consequence of sin. However, God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom is able to use all of the affliction and all of the pain and all of the evil in this world for good. He has ordained that these things take place because in his infinite wisdom, he is going to use them to bring about a greater good. I like to say it this way. God's not just sovereign. 
God is so sovereign that even the evil and the suffering in this universe must bow the knee to his plan. He is so sovereign. So let's first consider where the affliction comes from often in our lives. Let's talk about some sources of affliction. In the context of this stanza of the psalm, the source is other people. Look at verses 69 and 70. He says, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. The affliction here is mistreatment from other people, in particular, probably slander or gossip. He's saying the insolent, they're smearing me with lies. Anybody know what that feels like? It hurts, doesn't it? He says, they smear me with lies. In the next verse, he says, their heart is unfeeling like fat. The King James says, it's fat like grease. I don't even know what that means. I just thought it was funny, so I wanted to say it. The point, though, is that their heart is calloused. It's hard. They're smearing me with lies, and they don't care, is what the psalmist is saying. We know what that feels like and how painful that can be. And while that is one form of affliction, I think we can apply this to other forms of affliction in our lives as well. Sometimes, yes, it is affliction that comes through the mistreatment of other people. Sometimes affliction comes as a result of sin in our life. We understand that in God's world, actions have consequences, and often our sin can lead to negative consequences in our lives that lead to affliction. Sometimes it can be suffering that's not the result of sin, like Job, where his suffering was not any fault of his own. It can be a relationship that's a source of affliction. Perhaps it's a difficult marriage or a difficult relationship with a child or a friend or a coworker. Perhaps it's financial. We're being crushed under the weight of a financial burden, whether it be debt or anything else. Perhaps it's a health condition, whether it be a physical health issue that we've been suffering under or even a mental health struggle that we've been struggling with. We could go on and on and on. In a broken world like this one, there are a million different sources of potential affliction and suffering in our lives. And here's where we need a reality check as Christians this morning. I know this isn't popular in America. It's not going to get me a best-selling book contract. But listen, guys, the Word of God promises that we're going to suffer. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, that we're going to have affliction in our lives. We should expect it. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. We like to think about Paul as like super Christian, like he's one of the Avengers of Christianity or something like that. But listen to how he describes his ministry. This is the closest that he gets to bragging about his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what he says. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. By the way, that's not a confession of sin. That's a a punishment. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. How's that sound? Is that a job you want to sign up for? 
but he saved the best for last. This is his crescendo. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Didn't understand that one until I was a pastor. He talks about this affliction that he experiences. And here's the deal. God never promised us a life free from any of those things. He never promised us a life free from affliction. We can and should expect it. But you know what we also can and should expect in the midst of affliction? The presence and the power of our sovereign and loving God who promises to use every millisecond of it for our good and his glory. With this in mind, let's talk about God's purposes in our affliction. I want you to know, and if you don't get this, this sermon won't make sense. God has a purpose for every moment of our affliction. It's not random. It's not meaningless. Every moment of it, God has good and wise purposes for it. And I want to consider what a few of those are this morning. First of all, God uses affliction in our life to draw us closer to him, to draw us closer to him, to deepen our relationship with him. Remember verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes, that I might learn more about you and come closer to you. Let me give you a few ways that God does this. First of all, God uses affliction to remove the idols in our lives. Nothing will so expose what we value more than suffering. When the heat is turned up in our lives, it exposes what we've been trusting in and desiring more than Christ. It exposes what's really in our heart, what we really value. And we can look at it and see that oftentimes it's something other than Christ. But next, God uses affliction to show us the sufficiency of his grace that we knew with our mind, but we had not yet dealt in our heart, come to know. You know, we already read 2 Corinthians 11. If we were to keep going in chapter 12, we'd see that the apostle Paul had this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan that was tormenting him. And he pleaded with God three times that God would take it away. And what was God's answer? His answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. He's saying, Paul, you have something so much better than the miracle you're begging for. You have my grace. That's enough. That's sufficient for you. And Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Suffering gives us an opportunity to bring us to that place where we see the sufficiency of grace. Suffering places life in perspective. Have you ever come to a place, a season of difficulty or trial, and you begin to feel silly about the things you worried about when things were going well? It puts life in perspective. It shows us what's of eternal value, what really matters. Lastly, it teaches us the deep truths of Scripture in a profound way. Truths that we might have known on an intellectual level, but we hadn't savored with our heart yet. That's what it does. It teaches us to savor the precious truths of Scripture, that I might learn your statutes. So that's the first purpose of God for our affliction, is to draw us closer to him. The next purpose is discipline, is discipline. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, affliction in our lives can be a means of God's loving, fatherly discipline toward his children. 
Scripture teaches that God in love disciplines his children just as a loving father will discipline his children. As it says in Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me make a really important distinction here. I did not use the word punishment. I used the word discipline. So two different things. Sometimes when a Christian is suffering, they'll say, is God punishing me for something? The answer is a resounding no. It's a no. If you are a Christian, God is not punishing you. Why? Because he already punished Jesus. That's the gospel, right? That in the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation left for you in Christ. So it's not punishment. It's discipline. The word discipline means training, training in righteousness, that God loves us enough to use the affliction in our lives to train us to become more like him, to discipline us. And oftentimes we're so hard-headed and stubborn, and I'm mostly talking about me, that it takes a little bit of affliction to get our our attention. C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Problem of Pain. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's why we call it a wake-up call. You know, if I could use one more C.S. Lewis reference, I know I'm already at three, I'm sorry. Um, But I love Narnia. Any other Narnia fans out here? You know, the books are better than the movies. The movies are fine, okay? The books are awesome. So if you haven't read the books, that's your homework. Ask for it for Christmas or whatever, but read it. But um, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in the book, uh, you have Eustace, who at the beginning of the book, he's a little jerk. Like, nobody likes Eustace. Uh, And so you've got him, and so he goes away one day when they're on their journey, and he comes across this dragon who is dying. And he finds the dragon's treasure. And he is like, cha-ching, I'm gonna be rich, He's so excited that he finds this treasure. He goes into the dragon's cave and he falls asleep on the treasure on top of it, thinking about all the things he's going to do with his newfound wealth. And Lewis writes that because he fell asleep on a dragon's hoard, thinking dragonish thoughts in his mind, what happened? He turned into a dragon. And the next day he realizes it and he goes back to his friends and he has to like, you know, write in the sand and all this stuff as a dragon, trying to get them to realize that it's Eustace, that he's a dragon now. So he's a dragon for a couple of days and he's desperately trying to find out how he can become a boy again. And Aslan comes to him one night, Aslan the lion. For those of you guys that don't know, it's an allegory, okay? And Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. And Aslan tells him, you've got to remove the dragon skin. So Eustace takes his claws and kind of like how a snake can shed his skin, uh, he removes the dragon skin, but then he looks down and he's still a dragon. So he does it a second time and he looks down and guess what? He's still a dragon. Third time's the charm, right? He, He tries one more time and guess what? He's still a dragon. And here's what happens next. I'm gonna read it. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty much nearly desperate now. So I just lay down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, 
Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. Eustace could try as hard as he wanted, but he couldn't turn himself back into a boy. He couldn't remove the dragon skin on his own. He had to let Aslan do it. And even though his claws were sharp, he tore only to heal. And he did it to cleanse him. And if you keep reading in the book, you'll see that he didn't only stop being a dragon on the outside, but he stopped being a dragon on the inside too. That Aslan had cleansed him and changed him. Friends, God's discipline is painful in the moment, but it's for our good. It's for our healing. It's for our cleansing. But there's one more purpose here I wanna mention. God uses affliction to draw us closer to him. He uses it as a means of loving fatherly discipline, but he also uses it to accomplish his will for our lives. He uses it to accomplish his will for our lives. There is so much scripture we could point to with this one, but my favorite is the story of Joseph. I love Joseph's story. It's one of my favorites in all of the Bible, Genesis 37 to chapter 50. You guys know the story, but just to recap, Joseph is beloved by his father. He's his father's favorite. His other brothers couldn't stand him. So they beat him. They throw him in a pit, nearly the point of death, and they sell him into slavery at 17 years old. He spends some time in slavery where he's then the victim of a false accusation that lands him in prison. Then he spends several years in prison where he's forgotten about until finally one day in God's providence, he is raised up to a place of leadership in Egypt. And then one day, because there's a famine, his brothers come crawling to Egypt and this is Joseph's chance to get his revenge. Is that what happens? No, instead, it's this beautiful story of forgiveness where he forgives these men who ruined his life. But his brothers, they're so shocked by this forgiveness, they can't believe it. Even years later, they just can't believe it. So in Genesis chapter 50, after their dad dies, they still think he's gotta be just lying in the weeds ready to get us. So they come to him with this bogus story, like, hey, dad said before he died, be nice to us, pretty much. That's the Nate Weiss translation. Uh, and so this is what he says in verse 20. This is incredible. I want you to leave the verse on the screen for a minute because I wanna go through this. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. This is how Joseph reflects on his whole life, the prison, the pit, the slavery, all of it. He said, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Do you see that? In the same event, the same action, there are two different intentions. His brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Same word. He meant it. God is not just this chess player up in heaven responding to what happens in the world, and he's just really good. No, in that very event, God had intentions. He had purposes for that event. And what was it? to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The only reason that Jacob's family survived that famine is because Joseph was sold into slavery. God meant it for good. And if that's true here, how much more true is it in our lives? In every event, we can look at the suffering in our lives and say, it's meaningless. It's random. God, why would you let that happen? 
but we can't see the big picture. We don't see what God sees. Though the world, the flesh, and the devil mean it for evil, God means it for good. And we have to have the faith to trust him. So what do we do? How do we respond in that moment? Because I want to be clear, suffering does not automatically sanctify us. It's dependent upon our response. I've heard it said before that affliction can either make you bitter or better, depending on how you respond. So how do we respond? This is what Peter says to Christians who are suffering. 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We entrust our souls to our faithful creator. We keep praying. We keep seeking. We keep living for him. And even in the valley, we trust that his purposes are good. Last point this morning. We receive God's comfort. In the midst of our affliction, we receive God's comfort. Psalm 119 verse 50 says, this is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. We trust in the life-giving, life-changing promises of the word of God. Whenever I've gone through seasons of, of tribulation or trial in my life, those are the moments where scripture becomes so much more precious to me so much more real to me. God will often take a passage and make it a lighthouse for your soul. Back in 2019, when I was going through a season of trial, it was Psalm 130, where it says, I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and on his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. I can't read that passage without going back there and saying it was good that that happened because God taught me his word through it. That's what God does. His word gives us comfort in life. So receive that comfort this morning. Dig into the word of God and let the Holy Spirit use it to be healing for your soul. So as we're bringing this service to a close this morning, and I'd like to go ahead and invite the worship team back. My hope and prayer this morning is that we will be able to say with all of our hearts, Regardless of what we're facing, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Friends, affliction is not good. Suffering is not good. That is why God will stop at no length to rid this universe of it once and for all one day when Christ returns. But God is not just sovereign. God is so sovereign that he uses every moment of it for his glory and for our good. And I am not naive I understand that many of you came into this room this morning carrying heavy burdens, burdens that I cannot even fathom. You're feeling that weight and the pressure of the world on your shoulders this morning for whatever reason. If that's you, let me encourage you to entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Learn to trust that God is good, that God is wise, that he is in control. If you're here today and praise the Lord, things are going well and you're not facing any affliction, I have two things I wanna say. First of all, sometimes we praise God for his redemption and his salvation and sometimes we praise God for his protection. So praise God for his protection in your life. But my other counsel to you is buckle up, it's coming. You know, happy Thanksgiving. Like we live in a broken world. It's gonna come. So be ready when it does come.